So they say that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So it gets frustrating. You're really trying to get better at something or do something, and you try, you try, and you try, and nothing happens. Right? You get the same result over and over again. So my question is, what is the op- what, what do you call it when you do the same thing over and over again, but you get different results? Like, what is that? I don't know what it's called. But to me, that can be almost as equally frustrating, right? Because you, or you, maybe you want the same result, and yet so you do the same thing, and something different happens every time. So for me, you know, as I've shared earlier this year, I got to the, the hobby of woodworking. And so what I do is I make things, and I try to sell them on Facebook Marketplace. And because our garage is small, we don't have room to store anything. So I, make, I don't make very much profit on margin on any of this stuff because... In order for me to make something, I have to get rid of what I have. And so basically what I do is I try to sell it so I can make back what I put into it material-wise and then have some margin to buy some more wood or some more tools. And it's really nice to have a hobby that you don't have to pay for. So it pays for itself. Uh, And so what happens, though, is I try to price it and try to get as much as I can but still try to sell it kind of quickly. And so I'll price something for $80. And, you know, if you try to sell things on Facebook Marketplace or online, you know if you only get a handful of messages, it's probably a good price point. And if you get, like, 15, you're like, ugh. I sold it for too cheap, right? So I'll do this, and I'll put something up there, and I'll get like 15 messages, and I'll be like, sweet. I'll make this again, and I'll maybe try to bump it up $10. And so I make it again, bump it up $10, and nothing. And I'm like, it's $10, and you all wanted this for $80. And so what I'll do is I'll delete it, and I'll post it for $85. Nothing. Okay, fine, whatever. I'll do it at $80. At least I know I can sell it. So I'll delete it, post it again for $80. Still nothing. I'm like, where were all of you three weeks ago? Like, you all wanted this thing, and now you don't want it, and now you can get it, and you don't want it. And it's like frustrating to me because I'm trying to get rid of this stuff. I do the same exact thing. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And today, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we're going to look at this question that maybe, if particularly uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, you might have thought. And that's this uh, Why do some people respond to Jesus while others don't? Like, what is it that some, some people might say yes to Jesus? I mean, especially, you know, we're, we're pretty much all have access to the same amount of information. Uh, we can Google things. We can read the Bible. And so why is it that some people say yes to Jesus? And why is it that some people with the same information, uh, maybe similar experiences, say no? Uh, Jesus today is going to talk about this question, and he might answer it in a way that you and I probably don't expect, uh, particularly uh, in a way that maybe the popular idea of who Jesus is, Jesus is going to confront that this morning and maybe answer this question, again, in a way that you might find somewhat surprising. And so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you, and you can read along with us in page 890. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those home. It is our gift to you. Now, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we've seen up until this point, that Jesus has performed a lot of miracles and healings, and now he's starting to get in trouble with the religious leaders who have accused him of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. Uh, And uh, and they've now partnered with uh, some of the government officials to try to kill Jesus, because the government also doesn't want someone going around uh, saying that he is introducing a new kingdom. And so they got to figure out a way to get rid of Jesus that also won't cause a riot if it happens. And so all this is going on. And then today, uh, one of two times in the Gospel of Mark, Uh, Mark is going to move away from kind of quick narratives, here's what's happening, to focus specifically on teachings of Jesus. 
Right, so the Gospel of Mark, it's a very quick-moving book. Uh, m- most of the time, it's just narrative. Here's what happened, and maybe a, a quote or two from Jesus saying something or explaining something. Uh, only two times in the Gospel of Mark, one is in Mark chapter 4, Mark uh, kind of pauses and spends a good amount of time focusing specifically on some teachings of Jesus. And so he's going to show us, or he's going to read, we're going to read today uh, a parable that Jesus has. Now, a parable is kind of like a story. We'll talk more about that in a second. But parables, uh, it makes all the difference in the world who, the, who is telling the parable and your relationship to that person for you to understand what is happening. Because stories in and of themselves can be meaningless or they can mean a lot of varying things. And so you have to consider who is telling me the story and what are they trying to communicate so that I can actually understand what is happening. Otherwise, it can be really easy to misunderstand what's gonna, what Jesus is trying to explain, which we'll see here today. Uh, and so uh, Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. It says, again, he, being Jesus, began to teach by the sea. And a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down while the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore. He taught them many things and parables. Now, the sea here is the Sea of Galilee. He's done a lot at the Sea of Galilee up until this point in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, The crowd is so large, and so we saw this in Mark chapter 3, that Jesus is now having to start to teach from a boat. Uh, Part of that is for safety reasons, because he was literally like almost getting crushed by everyone trying to touch him. Uh, Then also for amplification reasons. So there's certain hills along the bank of the Sea of Galilee. So with the water and the hills, you can communicate to a large amount of people. So he's on the boat, and he's sharing parables. Now, in the Gospels, the parable is Jesus' preferred method of public teaching. Uh, a parable is a story. You can think of it as simply something that, a parable can be thought of as something like this. It is something that is placed along something else for clarification. So, for example, and we'll see this today, uh, the most common subject of Jesus' parables is the kingdom of God. It's what he came to introduce. It's what he came to uh, invite people into. And so he's going to use parables to try to illustrate and communicate to us what the kingdom of God actually is. And so to be clear, uh, as we read here this morning, uh, Jesus' primary message was not how to be a good person. Uh, It was not how to get to the good place when we die. Uh, Some of these things, of course, are byproducts of following Jesus, but that is not his primary, that's not the thing that he's primarily about. The thing that Jesus is primarily focused on is his kingdom. So we have to understand this, and he'll explain this here, but his teachings and his wisdom, they're not simply for morality's sake. And so if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that Jesus is primarily about his kingdom, you will misunderstand what he's trying to communicate in his parables. And all of his parables are like this. So let me just give you two quick examples of some well-known parables that many of us are probably familiar with. So for example, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a story about who this person was essentially beat up and thrown into a ditch, left for dead. You have a priest, you have a Levite, you have people who everyone considered to be good people who didn't stop and help the man. They just left him there. And then you have the Samaritans, which Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated Jews. And so for a Jewish audience, a Samaritan is a bad person, right, supposedly, and yet the Samaritan stops and help this person. Now, again, if you don't understand that Jesus' teachings are about the kingdom of God, you will read that parable and think that Jesus is just trying to tell us how to be a good person. That is not the point of the parable. The reason Jesus shares this parable is because he is asked by the religious people, what is the most important commandment? And he responds by saying, loving God 
and loving others. And let me show you what it means to love others. So it's not just about being a good person for the sake of being a good person. It's about loving others so that people can experience the kingdom of God. Or, for example, the prodigal son, where you have the son who runs away, wishes his dad was dead, and wastes all his possessions, and then eventually he comes back home and the father accepts him. That story is not how to be a good father and how to forgive a son. Right? That story is about who Jesus actually is, that he is the father that welcomes anyone who comes back to him. I kind of think of it like this. Our daughter, Finley, she's six. Uh, she's learning the piano. And so she's learning you know, these songs, and she goes to the next song. And as she's learning the songs, the point is not for her to learn a song. The point is for her to learn the piano. And as she is learning these songs, she is getting better at piano. But at this age, it's not about the song. It's about what she learns from, from getting better at these songs. And so that's a lot to say, but just to emphasize, it is about the kingdom of God. And so we have to understand that to properly understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. And so here's the parable. We'll start in verse 2 and keep going on. So he taught them many things in parables. And in his teachings, he said to them, listen. Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit that increased 30, 60, and 100 times. And then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. So this story on the surface seems to make sense. It's about a, a farmer or a sower who goes and he scatters seed across the ground. And depending on where this seed fell in the soil, uh, determine what actually happened to the seed, how fruitful it actually was. And so in some instances, it fell on the ground, the birds ate it right away, and so there was no fruit. Uh, in others, it fell on ground and it started springing up really quickly. It had no root, and so it died pretty fast after that. Other places, the thorns choked it out. And then finally, some of it produced amazing fruit that was blessed by God. 30, 60, and 100 times. Now, in the Old Testament, 100 times blessing was often viewed as a divine blessing. And so some of this fruit was blessed by God himself. And so here's what the parable means, and then we're going to understand what Jesus' point was. So on the surface, this parable seems to make sense. It's that the soil determines the fruit. That's what Jesus is saying here. The soil determines the fruit. Now, the question is, like, okay, that makes sense, but what is he actually trying to say? Now, I'll give away a little bit because Jesus in a second is going to explain to his disciples exactly the point of this. But what he's talking about, again, the kingdom of God. And so because we know that, the question then becomes for us is how receptive are you and I to the things of God? Now, what's interesting about this parable, that is, it is not about how per persuasive or how convincing someone is. right? So here, uh, in other words, what Jesus is saying is that it is on us, not others, when it comes to our understanding and our acceptance of Jesus or the kingdom of God. It doesn't say anything about the skill of the farmer of the sower. He is focused primarily on when we hear it, what do we do about it? Now, to be clear, this does not mean that there's, it is wrong, for example, to have questions or to have doubts or to wonder if Jesus is actually who he claimed to be, if any of this is true. 
But what he is saying here is that if we have doubts and questions, therefore it is upon us to do something about it. That we cannot blame other people or blame other things or other circumstances for our lack of belief in him. And so as a side note, again, as a pastor, I have a lot of these conversations. I just think it's important for us to remember, and I would like to point out, that evidence is not the leading cause of doubt. Right? Evidence in terms of, can I trust that this actually happened, in my experience, is not the primary reason people doubt Jesus and who he is. Right? And as, as much as we like to assume kind of in our enlightened, rational culture that we're very logical, we are not. Right? And you know this, right? If you're a sports fan, fall is like the best time of year for sports because nothing happens in the summer except baseball, and it's like, eh. And, but everything's coming back in the fall, right? You are not objective on your sports team at all. If they lose, it's because of the bad call that went against them or the one, thing, one mistake that they made or the, or the, the ref who kind of got, who hosed them. Like, it's never your team's fault. Like, especially in a close game, it's never your team's fault. And we never consider maybe the calls that went against the other team. Right? Or if your team, like for me, as you guys know, Duke basketball, it's, I'm big on it, and it's coming back, and I'm super excited. Like the years when Duke and Carolina are pretty evenly talent-wise, of course Carolina's not as good, like in my mind. Like there's nothing that they could do, and they could beat Duke twice, and it's because of the refs or because someone got hurt. Like it's not because they are bad, right? Why? Because I'm invested in Duke. I watch their games. I know the players. Well, I don't know the players, but if you have any hookups, you know, I'd, I'd meet them. That'd be great. I'd be a chaplain. Coach K, if you can hear this, come on, it's final year. Let's do this. Anyway, right? Like I'm not objective when it comes to Duke basketball. Uh, in fact, we know this, right? Uh, I think it, it, it's in the, the amygdala is what they say, that they believe that most of our decision-making is in the amygdala part of your brain, which is your emotional response, not your logical or rational part of your brain. And so we can say things if we have questions or doubts, or if we're not sure about this Jesus thing, or we don't want to be sure about this Jesus thing, that we can say, well, there's, I don't believe there's enough evidence. And I have found, it's kind of like saying you're busy. Like no one can argue with, I'm being busy. Like, what does that mean? Is it your fault? Is it like, nobody argues with that. And so here's what I would just encourage you, that if you're struggling, or if you have doubts, and if you have questions, and there's nothing wrong with that, here's what I would say. What evidence in particular is holding you back? And what are you doing about it? Right? If there's a particular thing that you're struggling with, well, don't just say, uh, I don't know, I, I just doubt, I don't, I don't really believe this is true, and then do, do, do nothing with it. Because that's just an excuse to say, I don't want to follow Jesus, which is fine if that's your decision, but you have to know. And so let's be honest, right? If you read scripture and you struggle with this idea of a six-day literal creation, and how do we wrestle with what science seems to say about evolution and all those things, here's what I would say. Well, what are you doing about it? What are you reading? What did the ancients who actually wrote the context in which Genesis was written, how is it actually supposed to be understood? Right? There's, it's nothing wrong with having questions about these things, but are you doing anything with it or are you using it as an excuse to say, I don't want to follow Jesus? Or uh, maybe you want to talk about what scripture says about sex and sexuality, that it is a good gift that God gives us when a man and a woman commit to themselves in marriage. Right? This is very anti what our culture says about sex. Right? And so if that's a struggle for you, why is why does scripture say what it says in the manner in which it says it? Are you doing anything with it? Or are you just kind of saying, eh, I don't really know. And so you're doing nothing with it, but you're using it as an excuse just to kind of give up on Jesus all together. Because what Jesus seems to be saying here is that it is on us, not on other things. And so let's continue. He says this in verse 10. It says, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about 
the parables. So again, on the surface, sower, farm, seed, like what is he actually trying to say? Now, as a side note, uh, the Gospels are not always arranged in chronological order. They are more so arranged in thematic order. So the Gospel authors, authors are trying to teach us something, and so sometimes they move things around to communicate a point. So uh, Mark chapter 4 is a great example of this. He's going to share a lot of parables, uh, but Mark is kind of interjecting here before we read these other parables. He's kind of showing what happened after the fact so that we can read them through the light lens. And so after all these parables, but again, starting with the parable of the sower, Jesus is going to explain to his disciples and others who are following him what exactly he was trying to communicate. So it says this in verse 11. He answered them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables. So the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of God are given to the community of God. Now, when the New Testament authors talk about secrets or mysteries, it's a little bit different of a connotation than what we think of when we hear mystery today. Like if, if someone says something is in a mystery, it's kind of something that um, isn't discoverable. It's kind of like very few people really understand it. And it's just like, well, I don't know why that is the way that it is but it just is. Throughout the New Testament, the mystery of the gospel is meant to be understood, that Jesus actually wants to know what it is. It's not supposed to be some secret of knowledge for only a certain amount of people. What he's saying here is that it is, it is open knowledge for anyone, but they have to want to accept me and to follow me to truly understand what is happening. Right? And so again, he uses parables, which seems kind of confusing, because why isn't Jesus just straight to the point? Like, why doesn't he just tell us exactly what to know? Well, here's, here's why in verse 12, when Jesus is going to say something that's probably going to surprise you, he says this. Here's why. So that they may indeed look and yet not perceive, that they may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. So Jesus says something here that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like you would assume Jesus here to very clearly teach the kingdom of God so that everybody can repent and everybody can uh, receive his grace and so that everybody can come into his kingdom. And yet here, <laughs> he seems to be saying the opposite. He seems to be saying he's trying to stop people from entering his kingdom. Now, the question is, why would he do that? Now, in verse 12, in most Bibles, uh, he's probably going to have an indention or a quotation mark. Uh, Jesus here, or maybe bolding, uh, Jesus here is quoting a verse from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And so uh, this verse 12 is pretty much a word-for-word -word, uh, you know, usage of Isaiah chapter 6, 9 through 10. And what he's doing here is he's demonstrating that his parables are presented not as windows that outsiders can look into and understand, but simply, but more so as like bars that are stopping people from entering into it. Now, again, this seems the opposite of what his point of being on earth actually was. So what's going on here? Now, as we've said often here at New City Church, uh, in the New Testament, if whenever the gospel writers, the New Testament writers quote a verse or two from the Old Testament, you're, the best way I've heard it explained is you're supposed to view it as like a hyperlink. And so Jesus or the gospel authors are not just quoting those specific verses, but they're quoting the context of which those verses are written in. And if you're familiar with the context, you'll better understand what he's trying to say. So what is Isaiah chapter 6 about? Well, Isaiah chapter 6 is about the hard-heartedness of Israel. They are in the promised land that God has been faithful to them, and yet they are turning away from God. They are doing whatever they want to do. They are offering uh, sacrifices to false idols. And so Isaiah chapter 6 is when God sends the prophet Isaiah to warn and to prophesy against the people of Israel to turn back, but the people of Israel are not listening. 
And so that being said, the sense that, you, that we get from Jesus quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 6 is that his parables, in other words, are simply conver, uh, confirming the states of the people's hearts, right? The insiders will be given understanding to the mystery, which is the gospel, which is Jesus, the kingdom of God. And the outsiders will not, who are not with Jesus will be confirmed in their disbelief. That his parables, therefore, are not just, try, not just about trying to convince people. They're about welcoming people. If you want to follow me, here, let me explain, you know, what this means. But if you don't, my parables are not meant to persuade you. You are simply going to be confirmed in your unbelief. And so, again, remember the context of which this was written, that this is not a Jew and a Gentile division, but a division between those who follow Jesus or those who don't. Right, Mark chapter 3 was written right before Mark chapter 4 because that's how numbers work. Right in the end of Mark chapter 3, we saw that Jesus tells his family that his true family are not people who are simply blood related to him or ethnically, you know, in the same uh, ethnic group as him, but anyone who does the will of God. So it's not about knowing him or being close to him relationally, but it's about are you actually trusting in Jesus? That is the division of which Jesus has come to create. And so maybe put another way, what point of what he's saying here is that the parables are a prophetic warning. They are, trust me, and so that you can enter my kingdom, but if you don't, here is what will happen to you. Or put another way, the teachings of Jesus are an invitation and a warning. They are an invitation and a warning, and we simply, we often focus just on the invitation part, and we miss what's actually going on here. Now, Jesus, his first parable in the Gospel of Mark is this one for a reason, because he's going to explain to us in just a second, all of the other parables that I uh, explained to you are to be understood through this paradigm. If you want to accept me, the keys to the kingdom will be given to you. But if you want to reject me, you will miss out on the goodness of what I'm giving you. They are an invitation they're also a warning. And it kind of made me think, think of things like modern day things that are an invitation and a warning. So for example, uh, like medicine, right? If you're sick and you take the appropriate medicine, like that's a good thing, but there's always a warning label that like, if you use this incorrectly, here are some bad side effects, right? Because if you use it in the wrong context or if you misunderstand its purpose, it'll actually be harmful for you. Or we were looking up uh, a couple of examples of products. Like, you know, if you ever notice things that you buy, sometimes they have warning labels on the box or in the instructions, that things that are like, who would do this? But somebody did this, and so they have to give you a warning label so they don't get sued, right? So because they don't misunderstand. So here are some funny ones that you would think, what, who would do this? But they're warning you that this is not the intended use. So we saw one uh, that was for a wheelbarrow, and on the box it said, not intended for highway use, right? So just because it has a tire, I don't know why you would think that's like, go do this thing, but that's not what they're made for. Uh, there was a stroller that we saw that said, remove child before folding. Now, if you're not familiar, if you don't have kids, most strollers fold up, and so, but you don't want to fold your child in the stroller because then, you know, you don't know where your child is, and so that would be bad, right? So don't do it. Uh, <laughs> there was, I'm laughing because I, uh, I'm not sure if I should share this one, but I'm going to. And your response will determine whether or not I share this in the second service. There was a thermometer, and it said, once used rectally, the thermometer should not be used orally. <laughs> okay, no, no, okay, I think it's okay. All right, but that's like, obviously, but that's just, just so you know, don't do it. Uh, there's a vanishing ink marker. I didn't even know that's a thing, but I guess it's a thing. It says, do not use for, for signing checks in any legal documents. Which that makes, that's a good one. Like, I, I could see myself actually doing that. So that's a good one. Uh, there's an iron that said, caution, do not iron while wearing shirt, because that could hurt you, 
Uh, and then maybe the last one, which I thought was the funniest, there's a fireplace logs that ignite, you know, pretty quickly. It says, warning, risk of fire. So that's what will happen. Now, what's going on here? The invitation is to use these things correctly. But it's warning you, if you use them in the wrong way, well, you could receive poor results. And that is what Jesus is trying to say here. You have to understand who I am and what I'm trying to communicate so that you can understand correctly what I'm teaching in my parables. And so he's going to explain this in more detail to his disciples. In verse 13, here's what it says next. It says, Then he said to them, and he being Jesus here, Don't you understand this parable? How then would you understand all of the parables. So again, in other words, this is the first parable for a reason. It is the paradigm by which we are to understand everything else he's going to teach us. And if you miss it, the others will not properly be understood. You could view them as self-help manuals or as really good ideas, but you will miss out what he's actually trying to communicate in his parables. So verse 14, he's now going to explain the point of this parable. He says this, the sower sows the word. Some are like the words sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the words sown in them. And others are like seed sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And then verse 20, And those like the seeds sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. So the seed here in this story is Jesus and is the gospel. Familiar with John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word is the Greek word for logos. It is Jesus and his message. So primarily, uh, this particular parable is about Jesus sowing uh, as the sower, going and sharing with people who he is and his kingdom. But it can also apply to anybody. So anybody who shares the gospel or tells people about Jesus would be considered a sower who is sowing his seed. And of course, the soil then is the human heart. So regardless of your level of interest, unless we accept the seed, we will miss out on God's kingdom. And all of Je because all of Jesus' teachings are about him and his kingdom. And so if we do not have receptive hearts, then we are going to miss out on it. Uh, one biblical scholar puts it this way. The quote will be on the screen. He says, those who are with Jesus and do the will of God, are insiders to whom the mystery of the kingdom is of kingdom of God is revealed. Those who are not with Jesus, from whom the parables seal their unbelief. Or I'm sorry, those who are not with Jesus are outsiders, from whom the parables seal their unbelief. Now again, this insider outsider, again, it's coming off the theme of Mark chapter three, where Jesus is telling people, everybody is invited into my kingdom, but you have to accept and follow and trust in me. Or maybe to encourage you this morning, uh, here's what I wanted maybe to take away. There's a lot of application things that you could say from this parable, but I want to focus particularly on those who would say they're a follower of Jesus, because here's what I know. Oftentimes, we can feel uh, discouraged when we try to share our faith or try to love others, and like it makes no difference, but then in some cases, people seem to respond well, and we kind of view um, how effective we are uh, in, ter in terms of how much we're actually being faithful. 
And what Jesus here is actually saying maybe the exact opposite. Here's what I believe he's saying in this parable. That your response to Jesus is more important than your results for Jesus. How you respond to him is the most important thing. Again, in this parable, the sower is not reprimanded for what they're doing. They're not being said, well, he should know that you should only sow seeds like in this particular plot of land. Why are you just showing it, shower, uh, showering it everywhere? Like, he is not reprimanded at all. Now, hear me. This is not an excuse to not be evangelistic or to not love people well or to not be a person of grace and humility, just like Jesus modeled for us. It's not an excuse for that. But it is an encouragement that you and I sow by living faithfully, faithfully where we are and that we have to trust Jesus for what is going to happen. Right? We don't know the future. We might have a friend who is far from Jesus and has rejected any conversation, but we have no idea. And Jesus is not saying, how dare you? You need to be better. He's saying, continue to follow me, continue to be faithful. It is up to me what I am going to do through the power of my spirit. It is not up to you. So if you're following Jesus this morning, remember, your response to Jesus is more important than your results for Jesus. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, again, Jesus is saying, what are you going to do about it? This is not to downplay church hurt or Christians hurting you or someone who claimed the name of Jesus doing terrible deeds in his name. This is not to excuse that. It is not to say that it is irrelevant. It is not to say that it, should, that it is okay that, that it happened the way that it happened. But what Jesus is saying here is at the end of the day, it is on you, whether or not you are going to follow me. In fact, he says as much. The last thing we'll read, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it'll be on the screen. Uh, Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, is talking about this very point, that it's not about us. It's about God and what he is doing. He is simply asking us to be faithful. He says this, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos was another leader in the other church, particularly for the Corinthian church. Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his labor, not your results, according to your faithfulness. For we are God's co-workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And so again, your response to Jesus is more important than your results. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came for us to invite us into his kingdom. And so yes, how we live matters. And yes, we want to live away, live in a way that honors him, but it does not precede following him. We follow him. We experience his grace first. Then we honor him with our lives. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, here's the challenge. What does this look like for you this week? Not to focus on the results, but simply to refocus on your response. What does it look like for you to practically be faithful this week? And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, here's the invitation. The mysteries in the kingdom of God is not secretive. It's not meant to be hidden. It's, it's meant to be shared. That your invitation is to come and experience God in the midst of the difficulties of life, in the midst of the, maybe the poor decisions that you've made, or the bad things that have happened to you that were completely outside of your control. Jesus is saying, I have come for you. I haven't come to be a self-help guru. I haven't come to show you the way to live the most enlightened life. I have come to invite you into the kingdom that will never end. That one day anyone in Jesus, not because of us, because of him, get to be part of his kingdom where there is no more lying, death, stealing, tears, hurt, or pain. And God is welcoming us into him. It is about our results, or sorry, it's about our response, not our results that what matters. And at the end of the day, Jesus is welcoming us into his family and saying, come and follow me. Let's pray.